0: Hello, Dallas Rogers here from City Road Podcast and welcome back to the Infrastructure Incubator Podcast series. It's great to have you along. Today I'm joined by Joanna Kubolter from Western Parklands Councils, Crystal Legacy from Melbourne University and Glenn Searle who is an adjunct with us here at the University of Sydney. And today we're getting to the topic of governance integration. How do we integrate governance across different levels of government against different priorities? We'll hear from Joanna Kubolta at Western Parklands Councils, now called The Parks. This is an alliance of eight local governments involved in planning the Western Parkland City. And I kick off by asking Glenn about integrated governance.
1: Okay. well, um, I think the first point is that um, uh, within the state government, the infrastructure agencies have traditionally operated basically as silos, silos, very independently of each other. So roads and public transport and water and so forth um, have operated according to their own agendas rather than sort of cooperating together. Um, and the Department of Planning uh, has, has traditionally tried to integrate um, what was happening between the infrastructure agencies through things like metropolitan urban development committees and so forth. So getting the kind of senior people around the table. But that's been a sort of fairly informal process. And for local government, of course, uh, they don't have any constitutional responsibility over state infrastructure or even their own infrastructure provisions are sort of guided by the constitutional powers of the state government. So. Local government doesn't have the powers. State government agencies have operated pretty independently. Crystal, we might go to you next.
0: What works and doesn't work in this arrangement?
2: Sure. Well, I think infrastructure governance and its integration in Melbourne, Victoria historically has been strong up to a point and historically under the Metropolitan Melbourne Board of Works, which of course got disbanded in the 1990s under Jeff Kennett when. Things started to get decentralized, and since then we've taken a, a, a very siloed turn towards a far more sort of splintered approach to uh, to infrastructure uh, provision, delivery, operation, and management. So the governance is really a constellation of, of many different actors, all kind of vying for relevance in this space. So if I just take transport as an example, we've got a department of transport now integrated with planning. Uh, and we've seen sort of attempts to kind of bring the different modes together, but still a lot of uh, the delivery and the operational and strategic work is being done through franchises or being conducted and supported in, ter- in terms of the strategic work through uh, consultancies. And a really good example of this in Melbourne in Victoria is that we don't have an integrated transport plan. So we're currently undertaking our biggest infrastructure build in a generation, and we don't have a plan to articulate how those different infrastructures are going to support each other in an integrated fashion.
0: Joanna, we've heard Glenn and Crystal there outline some of the issues with integration for us, but you've been trying to do this in a practical sense. Can you tell me what it's like to try to join up and integrate urban governance through some of the projects you've worked on?
3: Sure. So in the Western Parkland City, we, of course, have the city deal. Now, the city deal came about because there was a decision to build the airport, the second airport for Sydney, um, based on the fact that we were reaching sort of, you know, capacity at Kingsford Smith Airport. Um, so the federal government did decide to build the airport at Badgerys Creek. And as, along with that, there was a decision that obviously to make sure that that airport was connected and that we managed to um, make the absolute most out of that airport from a freight perspective, from a jobs perspective, etc. that we would create a city deal, sign a city deal and focus on 38 other commitments. So the airport is actually not one of the 38 commitments under the city deal. But the great thing about the city deal was that it was a point in time where everyone kind of sat down and went, okay, what do we need? What, what's going to be, we, we've got this piece of infrastructure coming. Um, it's a major piece of infrastructure, but what else is required around that? So what are the, the transport connections to and from, What you know, particularly in terms of freight and logistics? Do we need a freight logistics centre there? How's that going to be connected? What are the roads networks need to be, etc. So we did sit down and put a fair bit of thinking at the time and that thinking was done with the three levels of government. So we did look at really much trying to integrate the three levels of government and make sure that we all work together. That's where it started. That was in 2018. Um, Obviously, we've come down the road quite a bit since then. The airport is on track. It's actually ahead of schedule to be opened in 2026. But we have hit numerous um, road bumps, so to speak, along the way, in terms of that integration and in terms of actually making some of those commitments will be realised. So one of them, frankly, is transport connectivity. So, you know, we've had um, a lot of issues. We, We obviously had COVID hit. That's created a lot of economic disruption. And inevitably, state government, particularly in New South Wales, did have to spend a lot of money during the whole COVID um, situation that has now meant that they are perhaps a little bit more fiscally challenged than they were in 2018. So some of those commitments around building metro lines and that have now become contentious because they're trying to understand um, how do they pay for these things when they are in a very fiscally challenged environment. And obviously, it's a new government now, so they've got to make sure that they don't go against any of their election promises, etc. So we're in a whole new we're in a whole new ball game. Having said that, I mean, we still I think we have been able to have that little bit maybe of space, um, both literally physical space because a lot of it's greenfield area, but also in terms of timing um, to actually sit down and think about better ways to do things. So, for example, one of the things that I have sat on and worked on is um, we we talked about multi-utility corridors. So it's the idea of actually creating it potentially like almost like a tunnel or it can be just a, a big pipe that sits under a road before the road's built so you put it in first and it has the water it has the electricity it has the MBN cables it has everything in there but it's all easily accessible by any of those utility, providers, developers, etc. So we, we have been working on that. That There is um, a pilot of that that's going to go in on Elizabeth Drive, I believe it is, right next to the airport as that road is built uh, so that we can try and stop this issue where we're having in the past, for example, where a pavement might be ripped up by Sydney water because a water pipes burst. And then we fix it all. And then, you know, six months later, along comes MBN and has to rip it up or the council needs to rip it up to put trees in or something, better stormwater management. So we are trying to reimagine and, and be a bit more innovative in how we've approached it and we do have a little bit of space to do that, but it's an ongoing challenge.
2: Oh, I've just got a, a quick follow up question. I'm curious to know how well City Deals has worked as a as a sort of incentive to facilitate integration and governance.
3: Yeah, so the funny thing is when I first started my job, to be honest, and I started two and a half years ago, I, I think I fell into the category of a lot of people which sort of assumed that when City Deal was signed, the money was put aside for all the commitments. Um, I've even been asked by people, well, can't you just get it out of the City Deal pot of money? <laughs> Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So although... Those thirty-eight commitments were agreed to. Um, the money was not apportioned; it was not set aside. So that obviously creates issues for us on an ongoing basis. However, at the same time, city deals at its core is about bringing the three levels of government together. Right? It's about trying to make sure that we don't duplicate or replicate, but instead work together. We collaborate. So we all understand. You know, we we work together on what our strategic vision is. We all agree on what that strategic vision vision is, and then we all say, okay, what what roles will each of us play, and and how do we make sure that we all work together and we're not siloed? We do do things together. And I think the city deal has been very effective at doing that. I think as an alliance that the eight councils recognise that probably more so than in any other time in the past or indeed perhaps in comparison to other parts of Sydney even, we have a reach into state and federal government that has never been had before. And it does give us that ability to, to, to have those conversations. It's not perfect. Um, it's an ongoing job to try and make sure that we are getting to speak to everybody that needs to be spoken to. So, you know, we might be, for example, we, we work very closely with the Western Partner City Authority within state government, um, but we, we maybe need to have more say with transport, for example. So some of those connections you know, are still not perfect, but We've certainly found that we've had um, a lot more success than has ever been achieved in the past. so it's been quite successful, I would say in that sense.
0: You're dealing with some complex intergovernment relationships there dealing with the three levels of government. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you integrate these three levels of government here?
3: Yeah, so under the city deal, we actually had a governance structure whereby the three levels, in a sense, met. So we had a coordination committee where, sort of, you could see it as maybe the senior executives or you know of of councils would meet. Um, we also then had the implementation board, which is all the general managers plus the secretaries of the relevant departments. So we'd have the secretary of transport, the secretary of DPC, the secretary of planning, etc. And then we'd have the leadership group where the mayors would meet with the ministers. So we would always have minister, uh, the minister of the Department of Infrastructure at the federal level, and then. Um, it was Stuart Ayres as the Minister for Western Sydney and also um, in his relevant portfolios. So we... Would have regular meetings and bring those three levels together. Aside from that, obviously we worked very closely with the Western Partland City Authority. There was a a body; it still exists, but it it is changing right now, called the Delivery Office. And in the Delivery Office, we had myself as the local government representative, or the representative of the eight councils, and then obviously the state government through the authority. And you know they would bring in relevant people as and when necessary. And then also the federal government people were representatives were there as well. So that was our. We have weekly meetings of of the Delivery Office. So that was our chance to sort of raise things, tell them that letters were coming, ask for assistance to organise appointments um, and just sort of try and grease the wheels. So there's been a lot of different formats. We also... The, there's been a number of commitments that actually re, have resulted in entities being created. So we have the Western Sydney Planning Partnership, which is very relevant to infrastructure development because the Western Sydney Planning Partnership was set up, it was a commitment, and the whole idea of that is it has the head of every planning department of the councils in it, but it also has, obviously, representatives from the Department of Planning, Transport, Water, etc., and that operates to look at planning issues and try again to resolve some of those regulatory issues or issues that we're you know trying to work together rather than at cross purposes. We also set up a health alliance and the health alliance has, again, representatives from the, from the community sections of all councils, plus it has the two relevant LHDs, local health districts and public health network people in there, so state and federal government involved again. So we do have other entities that have, again, those three levels of government representation that focus on specific issues and that works, again to help us to get those conversations happening regularly.
0: I'd like to go to you, Glenn, to hear your thoughts on this form of urban governance. So you've done a lot of work looking at the history of urban governance arrangements over
1: time. What do you make of this new form of urban governance? It's it's um, reminiscent of approaches that have been tried in the past and, and um, sometimes in the past when approaches have been fairly successful, they haven't been continued with changes of governance and changes in ideology and so forth. So uh, I hope that doesn't happen this time because it sounds like it's working very well. But if we look back at um, the Department of Urban and Regional Development back in the 70s, for example, that, that was very successful in, in terms of bringing local government on board and distributing federal government money for uh, sewerage upgrades and so forth. And, and then that changed with uh, the change of government in 75. Um, then in the early 2000s, you had the growth centres commissions in, in Western Sydney as well, which were uh, a bit like the Western Parkland City Authority now in terms of trying to coordinate infrastructure and development and, and sort of make planning happen in a, in a sort of integrated way. And th- that was working very well, according to um, everybody who was involved. But again, with the, uh, the, the developers didn't like it because it sort of put so much onus on them paying for infrastructure that you know was needed to for development. So the development pressure sort of caused the Growth Centers Commission to be lost. So that was a sort of sad thing. So I, I just hope that, you know, as I say again, that doesn't happen to this, this time around as well. And Crystal, what do you
0: make of this new type of governance arrangement?
2: I mean, my my general reflection is, so I, I look at the politics of infrastructure planning and its governance. So I see things through a political lens. And one of the things that I, I, it sounds like this is working quite well, but as developments progress, you know, managing the expectations, particularly around commercial imperatives will be really, really fundamental, I would thought, just thinking about you know, large-scale urban renewal projects over time, uh, we tend to lean on these market-based systems that result in not very good outcomes for communities once, you know, once time passes and, and new priorities are, are set. So when you tend to read these examples uh, historically, uh, what are the one of the outcomes in terms of evaluation and how we can learn and do things differently it tends to fall on how are we communicating the strategic ambitions, how are those strategic ambitions and those um, responsible for delivering them held to account so that they are delivered in the fashion as set up at the start? And that is particularly around those, those ambitions that serve community and environmental interests. I mean climate change is something that needs to be at the forefront of all of our minds obviously.
3: Yeah, I mean I think that's part of the problem isn't it? it's tricky isn't it? It's all well and fine to do long-term strategic planning which I think we all agree needs to happen, but it's about how do you fund that? And how do you find the money? And uh, you know, particularly the whole the impact of covid, you know, couldn't have been foreseen. So Reality is those sorts of things happen. So how do you how do you go about making sure that the money is apportioned? I mean, obviously, too, there's some tricky things too. Like, for example, in our area, you know, there's the whole argument about value for money, right? Like, I would, as a taxpayer, I'd be the first person to say that the government should only spend money on things that are going to offer value for money and are going to offer um, amenity and you know, really improve the livability of our community. But there's so there's been some arguments we've been pushing, and there is actually a commitment to a north south rail line so that we can. All our communities from Penrith and St Marys, right down through Campbelltown and you know Camden, Wollongong can access the airport. We don't have good transport connectivity at all in the Western Partland City. It's shocking. Um, you cannot get from one place to the other at all. Like I can get up to Campbelltown from Wollongong, but I can't get from Campbelltown to Camden for crying out loud. You know, and it's only 20 minutes down the road. So things like that, we have fundamental issues. But you know, there's been arguments um, made in the press about the fact that well, you know, the, the number of people that would actually travel on those lines is so. Minimal that you know, therefore, it should be spent, the money should be spent in Parramatta or it should be spent elsewhere, but while those arguments are true there's a whole lot of other factors that have to be taken into account in terms of that long term vision and the fact that we you know by 2040 we'll be we'll we'll have a third of sydney's growth coming to our area that's the reality that's you know i know there's been some talks by the premier of late of trying to you know even the the growth across you know making um you know put more high density development in other parts but the reality is is that you know we're going to take a large percentage of the growth of sydney and we're going to take a large percentage of the migrants so we need these things. And, yes, maybe they won't be immediately as well um, used as perhaps other areas, but they're still, you know, they're still really needed and they will over time. So there's that whole argument, isn't it, too, is that, It is an investment to be made now, but for the greater good longer term. Um, The only other thing I'd like to just comment on too is, I mean, what we've been talking about a lot lately amongst the eight councils, you know, we, we, quite a number of my councils have been hit really hard lately with floods and obviously fires before that. Um, So resilience about resilient, you know, and sustainable. I mean, that goes to the whole climate change issue too, is that we need to build back just not as it was, but build back better so that they're more resilient, more sustainable. um, And that takes more money usually than what it cost in the first place. And and that's a real problem. Councils don't have the funds to build back as it is, let alone better. But that's really where we should be looking in terms of the future.
0: Glenn, what do you make of this complicated arrangement? We have short-term planning issues. We have long-term strategic planning issues. We've got local communities, got questions of... First Nation politics, we've got big macro issues like climate change all coming together. How should we or could we manage that?
1: Look, um, it's a question of getting everybody around the table, but getting everybody to be committed to accepting what's going on around the table. So, for example, um, in the past, things like uh, urban development committees and so forth have been attended by senior people, but uh, unless there's formal legislative requirements for that committee to have effective powers, then that that sort of voluntary association uh, sort of falls down. So there is a need, I think, for legislation, I think always, to sort of force people to sort of come together. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you, you, you stop listening to people if you're not forced to by legislation. So, for example, the whole Indigenous kind of country aspect needs to be sort of much more forcefully taken on board and, and, and maybe you know, the voice referendum coming up Makes that legislative um, requirement as well. So, uh, looking at what's happened in Sydney over the last 50 years, you can see that these voluntary arrangements sort of um, have tended to sort of fall apart because the ministers involved and the heads of department don't have to follow what goes on in those committees. So, unless you force them to do that. And the Greater Sydney Commission. Uh, was originally set up to try and achieve that, but again, you know, it, it didn't sort of require the heads of the department to follow the directions of the Greater Sydney Commission. You know, they could still sort of follow what they wanted to do, even after having advice within that sort of uh, Greater Sydney Commission forum. So. I know that there's been criticism of the Greater Sydney Commission for not being a planning authority with final powers over sort of planning decisions and infrastructure decisions. Um, Ed Blakely's pointed out that in New York, the planning commission does have those powers, and he was disappointed that the GSC in Sydney didn't have those kinds of powers. So, you know, that that's that's worth a thought, I think. Crystal,
2: yeah, excellent question. But I I want to come back to uh, a phrase that was used earlier on that I think we throw around all the time without really carefully interrogating the implications of it in terms of how we then structure a public conversation about the future of a city. And that is value for money, right? Value for money offers a very narrow lens through which to understand urban development and its opportunities for addressing complex social and environmental issues, climate change, justice being just two. And this is something that we confront here in Victoria, and I know it's well and truly present in New South Wales as well, is that we make infrastructure decisions based on value for money, which of course is then determined by a series of models and indicators and instruments that not everyone is privy to. And that's set up as the explanation, the justification for certain priorities being set. And I'm not sure if value for money is really serving us all that well anymore. And I'm going to impress on our policymakers to to work with academics like us to reshape those conversations, because I don't think we have a lot of time to just kind of fap around and not get this right. Um, And so I think we need to broaden that conversation out. And that links us into then how do we have conversations with communities Who, sure, some of us are interested in value for money as taxpayers, perhaps, but a lot of us are also interested in the future and how that future will show up for us in terms of our own personal livelihoods and then the livelihoods of our family, friends, and communities extended beyond that. Now, we don't do community engagement all that well. We do it well in moments of community engagement. There are lots of tools and technologies around to say that we have engaged with 100, 10,000 people about the future of a place. But what we don't do is actually engage with the depth of place to understand the nuances of how it works, to do that work around deep listening. And also do it in a way that also reflects and acknowledges and engages with the harder political questions around who wins and who loses. And in urban development, there are always losers. And we need to be really honest about that and, and to make sure that when we have these conversations that we do so in a way that we think very carefully about how we properly and adequately compensate communities that will be negatively affected if they are and are if there are ways in which we can bring communities in so that those you know we mitigate and minimize any of those those kind of negative impacts and that's a really great uh, opportunity but i guess i can i can assure you that the Uh, ideas, the great ideas are not going to come from the experts, they're going to come from communities themselves that understand the places upon which they live and practice and recreate. And that's a completely different reframe around how we do community engagement, which is not to serve urban development, it's not to serve the private interest, it's not to serve value for money propositions, it is to serve communities and what, what it is that they value about where they live and their opportunities into the future.
0: Joanna, is our governance system up for this challenge?
3: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I just wanted to respond to Crystal. Yeah, I totally agree, Crystal. I mean, what I was trying to say, I guess, is that, you know, we, you know, in the Western Portland City, you know, we do suffer from that whole argument for value for money, because, you know, we're a huge area. We're like 8,000 hectares, you know, so it's an enormous geographical area. So, you know, if you're going to put in a rail line, it's going to be long and very expensive. And to be honest, in some cases already the, the the development that's happened now means that, you know, it's probably going to be forced underground now, you know, to get to the airport through Camden, for example, or whatever. So, you know, the costs are going to be astronomical. So it's very easy to say, oh, it's not value for money. You know, so that, that my point was more that that can't be the only or shouldn't even be the main um, consideration. However, I just wanted to say that, you know, as a taxpayer, I understand that argument. I understand why people want to hear that. But I do feel the same. I mean, and certainly in terms of environmental factors and all the other things that we need to really be looking at now, you know, sometimes it won't appear to be value for money, but it is still value for our future. Let's put it a different way, maybe. So I agree. I think that more work needs to be done on that, that kind of thinking uh, and how to prioritise things. I just also wanted to say, I'm just going to put a quick plug in here for councils. I do think this is one of the things that councils do really well, is listen to their community and understand their community. And, you know, that's one of the things, one of the the number one things I find myself telling state government particularly is that, you know, talk to councils. They know their community. They know what the key issues are. They know um, what the needs are. They know what the people want. So, you know, I do think that um, councils are quite good at listening to their communities and understanding them and trying to respond. They're not necessarily always good at it. They're not necessarily always well equipped in the sense that they don't have maybe the resources to do so, but they certainly do understand. So, you know, I do think that's something that we do bring to the table.
2: Excellent. I completely agree. So it sounds like we're in vast agreement here uh, and I, and that's really wonderful and exciting. But I also just, you know, when we, when we listen to communities, uh, one of the things that always comes up in conversations I have here is that not all communities are having the same conversations, right? They're at different starting points and you know as we're in a landscape of yimbies and nimbies they can get really overwhelming around you know what these different groups are actually saying about justice and what they're saying about climate and i think you know practitioners academics policymakers those of us who are on the ground having those conversations in addition to listening communities we also need to provide a level of leadership as well and bold leadership that frank and fearless advice that can be really difficult to offer in current um, bureaucratic landscapes at the moment. So I think it's a very nuanced conversation that uh, and and governance system that we need to be sort of occupying and operating within.
3: Yeah, I think I mean I agree. I mean obviously I have eight councils and they all have very different needs, very different environments, very different um, experiences and objectives, frankly. So, you know, one of the things that we've kind of all agreed on is that, you know, at the end of the day, what we need to do is talk about the big picture, right? What is the big What is the big picture that we want? So, for example, you know, we have poorer health outcomes in the Western Partland City than any other part of Sydney. And we have a higher rate of cancer. We have massively higher levels of cardiovascular disease, of diabetes, etc. So it's a really, it's a big problem for us, right? And some of that comes from environmental factors, the fact that 80% of particulates end up in the air over Western Sydney by the end of the day. So there's massive issues Issues there. Well, we can all agree that that we don't have the appropriate level of health facilities or health, you know, um, to deal with those out. You know, the fact that we have these poorer health outcomes, we need more. So we can all agree on that. We can all fight for that. And then when it gets to Fairfield, what does that mean for Fairfield? Well, maybe that means that they need a significant upgrade of Fairfield Hospital. What does it mean for Wallandilly? Well, they need a hospital. They've got nothing. So, or maybe they need a specialist GP clinic. That's you know, you can then when you get down to the LGA level, it, it then devolves down to that specific ask. But we can still all Talk together about what the bigger picture is and what the needs are. So, I think sometimes when it does get too parochial, it can end up into a well, I want this, but I want that. But if you take it back that one step, then you can actually agree what what needs to happen at that bigger picture level and at least start there.
0: All right, to uh, wrap this up, if you could do one thing or change one thing in the urban governance system from your perspective or field of expertise, what would it be? That's a tough one.
2: I I can have a go first. I mean, the thing that, you know, really, really gets under my skin is when we say things like we need to take the politics out of planning or out of infrastructure planning, out of anything, really. And I understand where that's coming from. That's coming from a concern around pork barreling and the thing that, you know, parties like to do. But I think we need to really strengthen and mature our conversations around like small B politics and to really kind of lean into the different ways in which values and ideologies and difference kind of swirl around in the city. And I don't think we should be afraid of that. I think we need to develop capacity and a level of sophistication so that we can have those harder conversations. I think now that community participation is a big Part of urban development and infrastructure delivery. Um, And that's, we're seeing that through legislation and we're seeing that through sort of practice and the professionalization of participation as well. That we tend to engage communities fairly well, but it doesn't lead to good planning outcomes always. So there's this huge disconnect between community engagement and the delivery of outcomes that actually serve communities. Yeah. So, and and I think this is a real issue. And I think our communities are going to catch on to that really quickly. And they're going to get really frustrated. They're already frustrated. I'm frustrated. And I think it's because we're not having an honest conversation about what's at stake and for whom and who is at the helm of making those decisions and how we can we change that politics in those power relationships that currently govern our cities.
1: I'd just like to support what Crystal's been saying. And I think that um, what I'd like to see is that um, much more community involvement in in the way the plans are actually shaped uh, infrastructure plans and wider planning so that the the community actually has got a sort of equal say to other stakeholders in terms of the way the structure plans come out so that needs to be informed as you say crystal you know a lot of lot of community input is is not really well all that well informed so it needs to be well informed so i think we need to be able to use uh, modern social media um, electronic sort of um, communication and so forth so getting people to be to say what they actually want their community not just having town hall meetings but using sort of uh, mass social media and so on and so that needs to be very central to the strategic plan making process and then the other thing I think is that the The strategic plans which come out of that need to be supported by um, legislation or or certainly state government authority, local government authority, as saying that's the way things will actually happen so that the infrastructure agencies are going to be part of making that strategic plan happen and not going their own way and sort of deviating from it. So that would require some sort of legislation and maybe giving somebody, some agency like the Greater Sydney Commission or the Greater Cities Commission, uh, greater authority in the way that I was saying that happens in say places like New York so that the Greater Sydney Commission, Greater City Commission has ultimate authority over sort of the way in which infrastructure spending is, uh, is actually made. So that requires a big political change at the top of state government but uh, uh, that's, that's what I'd like to see even though it might be politically very difficult.
3: That's a tricky one. I I think, I um, you know, like I've been sitting here thinking and listening to you both and I agree with all, everything you all said, but um, I think probably my number one wish is to maybe become a little bit more agile. So it's a bit, bit idealistic probably given the number of, you know, government, um, levels of government and, and people involved. But I do feel that we, we can be quite slow to embrace change or embrace opportunities that exist. So even like if you look at COVID, you know, while that, Obviously, was a massive impact. What we did find, though, is it did increase. You know, increased the people staying at home, working from home. That gives us an opportunity, for example, to develop our strategic centres and make them something places where people can. You know, we talk about the thirty-minute city and the fifteen-minute neighbourhood and all that sort of stuff, but what are we actually doing to achieve it? You know, it's about moving quickly and saying, okay, we had this vision, now we've got this change, how are we going to change it and let's move quickly to implement that? I I would love to see us be maybe a bit more innovative and a bit more agile in how we approach things um, and have a structure that allows that. It's it's tricky. It's probably a bit idealistic, but... That would be great because I do think that there's, you know, in the way that we approach our planning and the way we approach, you know, particularly, you know, the development of our cities, it would be great if we could look at these things as opportunities and and take advantage of them rather than seeing them as negatives. So I also do think, I mean, I would like to see... Yeah, as I said, we have been working with the three levels of government. I think that that's absolutely crucial and essential. Um, I would like to see that expand further. Um, one of the things I think has been a problem for us all, all three levels of government in the past, is that you know there's a tendency to not to want to show your dirty laundry. You know, So everybody kind of waits until everything is perfect before they share it with the other levels. But then what that means is that you effectively you're kind of presenting it as a fait accompli and then that just makes everyone annoyed. So we've got to kind of get over that, that desire to kind of look perfect and, and be, totally organised before we, we move and trust each other a bit more so I think we're working on that um, and I think more work needs to be done so yeah <laughs>